Welcome to the Minds of the Early Church podcast. This podcast seeks to understand and develop the way of thinking of the early church, especially its spiritual and intellectual insights, in order to guide us in our time. Developing this way of thinking in ourselves will also give us new ways of navigating a quickly changing world and will allow us to engage the modern world in a fresh, exciting, and authentic way. Theological Awareness, Part 1. Welcome to the latest episode of the Mind of the Early Church podcast. Today's episode is about theological awareness, which is a very important topic that we find coming up all the time, it seems, these days as Orthodox Christians living in the West. Today, it will be a little bit different. I have a special guest with me, Father Paul Girgis from Canada, uh, and I'll let him introduce himself for those of you who are unfamiliar with him. Hi, good morning, Daniel. I'm glad to be here. Uh, my name is Father Paul. I serve in the Church of the Virgin Mary in St. Athanasius in Mississauga, in Ontario, Canada, near Toronto. And I've been um, serving in this church since my ordination in 2007. And uh, I'm glad to be here this morning. Thank you for being with us. So, you know, a lot of times we have talk come up in churches like, um, all I need is to pray and go to church, and maybe read my Bible, and this is all we need to be good Christians. Do you see a problem with that? Uh, I see this attitude, yes, and it's prevalent. And it's one of the attitudes that I see when it comes to theological education or awareness or really deepening your understanding of the faith, of not just what to believe, but why believe what we believe. The other side of things is indifference. It doesn't really matter. It's not going to put food on the table. It's really not the thing that's going to make me a more eligible bachelor or bachelorette. It's it's something that's kind of, if I have time, I'll do it. If I'm interested, I'll, I'll do it. I'll read a book, that sort of attitude. But uh, in general, Obviously, I, um, I don't think these uh, attitudes are, uh, are helpful. Uh, and I don't think these attitudes uh, are part of our heritage. In fact, I think it's the opposite, that our heritage is full of uh, men and women who took their faith very seriously, who took the time, um, uh, invested the effort to learn about who they are and where they come from and why they believe what they believe. It wasn't just merely memorizing a few key statements or a few short answers to a few important questions and, you know, be on their way. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting because like when they bring up that attitude, they don't know that they're dividing saints into categories. Mm-hmm. Like when we look at the greatest saints in our church, St. Athanasius, St. Cyril, St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory the Theologian. These were all studied and learned men. And it's these people that we commemorate in our liturgies, like specifically by name. These are the people that we name our churches after. And it seems like they don't consider those saints versus other saints. And that creates a false division in the body of Christ. Um, I also see like, you know, that excuse with time that you mentioned, I don't have time for this. And when I do, maybe I'll pick up a book and read. 
Well, a lot of the books that we read, like C.S. Lewis, like G.K. Chesterton, these very famous books could not have been written had those men not gotten a grasp on theology. And in both those cases, they were reading the fathers. Like people don't know this about C.S. Lewis and why he's so well received in, in orthodoxy, because actually a lot of what he says comes straight out of the fathers. An example would be like the, the moral argument that he makes at the beginning of mere Christianity. That's the idea of natural law as the fathers articulated it. Or in miracles, you know, he, in this short um, preface on the incarnation, he praises St. Athanasius's approach to miracles. And someone wonders, well, it would have been great if he had written a book on that. And he did. <laughs> he wrote miracles. And, and one time I remember discussing with my priest um, a section from that book. And I found my priest completing it for me. I'm like, did you read the book? He's like, no, this is St. Augustine. Right. He's like, yeah, he's taking this from St. Augustine. And I remember reading in another section, um, he's talking about the work of Christ in nature. And I realized that he's referring to St. Irenaeus of Lyon and he didn't mention it. Now, of course, that's not plagiarism. You know, maybe he heard the view somewhere. Um, in other cases, he clearly quotes St. Athanasius, St. Augustine. And that type of thinking and its developments in those books is mm -hmm. directly related to our heritage as Orthodox Christians. It's, okay. it's, and people don't see that. And, you know, they're so happy, like, I'll read C.S. Lewis, but I won't read The Fathers. They're too difficult. So I'm like, well, <laughs> Athanasius is like the C.S. Lewis of the early church. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's like people have the wrong, even the wrong thinking about the matter like they don't even know how to approach it much less absolutely they divide i guess uh the theology into two sections it's the experiential and the, the, the i guess the theoretical and they they say they focus i guess inadvertently on the practical and saying it's important to pray but um to know who i'm praying to who I'm communicating with, who's present in this prayer is, is not really the focus as long as I'm praying, as long as I'm practicing the rituals, as long as I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Pope Kirolos, you find so many books on the miracles, right? But so very few on the life. And it is the life that we ought to imitate. Uh, so this is just another example of how we focused almost on the external, on a superficial, without taking the time or without really finding it important to dig deeper. And digging deeper is most important right now because of where we live. We no longer live in this bubble where we're in Egypt and... Um, everybody kind of knows the boundaries when it comes to thoughts, to ideas, to arguments. We live in a multicultural society and questions and, uh, and discussions abound all the time. And unfortunately, if I'm not familiar, if I don't understand my faith, I shy away from these interactions. It makes me feel like I'm weaker or my faith is weaker. My faith has nothing to offer. Yeah, and it's, it's, I feel like a lot of times it's people will continue believing even though they have question upon question, doubt upon doubt, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with doubt. It's, it's 
many times our spirituality is is benefited from the doubt but it's when it's doubt upon doubt and there's no answer and there's no solution it just leads to a very fragmented and unstable person much less faith you know they get more frustrated they get very fearful they they think that any moment they're going to lose their faith and and it creates super defensiveness and i've even seen like a flip side it's like some people go to church and you can tell that they're having doubts and they get so defensive and angry and upset if you're going to discuss anything about it. Like, like to make this holy, I can't discuss it at all. And it's, it's, I've seen it go through families and lead to a lot of frustration with parents and children. And it hurts the relationship between parents and children, uh, parents who believe in children who are having se- severe doubts and parents who don't want to go to the church to solve the problem. They think they can solve it in-house. So there's a lot of times there's shame with doubt. Then a lot of times there's also people asking really good questions and it clarifies the doubt. And, and I want to say like sometimes we have two types of doubt um, or at least we, we call one of them doubt. Once you question because you're starting to suspect and that gets people very defensive. The, the servants teaching um, the parents, the parents, yep. you know, they'll start praying way more about it. You know, maybe they don't pray and now they're praying every single day, three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right. and it's causing anxiety. But other times someone asks a question and it's not doubt. It's like a student who's very interested in a subject and he raises his hand and asks a question because he wants to know more. And we perceive that as doubt. So that one's not an issue. Maybe it's an issue where like he won't get answers. But what can you say about the role of doubt and the role of theological awareness and education and how those how that becomes a pastoral service to those who are doubting? What have you seen in, in, in your ministry? From from my experience, well, first of all, in the church we have a whole Sunday dedicated to doubt. It's the Sunday after the feast of the resurrection. And um, some people believe that doubt is something negative, that if there is doubt, it's because the faith isn't strong enough. I don't believe hard enough. Uh, I don't pray uh, well enough. And um, this is obviously not what we see in the gospel. This is not how Christ addressed the doubt. He didn't shame or guilt Thomas for doubting, but he addressed the doubt. Uh, this is one part of it. The other part is how do I address the doubt if I myself have no clue what the answer is or where to go about to find the answer. Uh, Sometimes I say this to parents, uh, when they bring their kids to church and ask the church to teach the kids to pray. And I respond by saying that why, why should the kids pray if mom and dad don't pray? Why should the kids read the Bible if mom and dad don't read the Bible? I, I, I can tell them in Sunday school, read your Bible, and this is how I want you to read it. Uh, pray the Agbeah, and this is how I want you to pray it. But at home, if they don't see mom and dad invested and spending the time praying and reading the Bible, they're not going to want to do this, this at all, no matter how loud I shout, I shout it out and how many times I say it. And the same goes for uh, theological education. If I'm not, me as a, as a parent, 
if I don't feel it's important enough to learn about the history, to learn about the tradition, to learn about my faith, and I'm not saying I'm going to go and get a, a you know a PhD in in theology, but to be aware and to be familiar and to have you know a working understanding uh, of uh, of the faith. Uh, if I don't have that and my kids come and ask me questions, I'm not gonna be able to answer and, and I'm gonna give them answers that aren't really uh, addressing the question. They're, most of the time it's answers that paper over the question, answer that bypass or sidestep the question altogether and you know, kind of answers that you know, uh, amount to how dare you ask this kind of question mm. or, or you know, uh, just go and pray and you'll feel better but it, w- it doesn't address the the question and it, it doesn't address the the not not necessarily that this person is forsaking the faith but the person i believe legitimately wants to grow wants to understand it's not that i'm saying well i don't have an answer to a question that means i'm forsaking the faith i'm leaving my faith i'm leaving my church but i care enough that i want to know and I want to continue to know. Yeah, and, and it's, it's interesting how even reading a little bit in the early church fathers shows you that approach as well. It's even the approach when someone doubts how we respond. You know, I think of books like um, On the Soul and the Resurrection by St. Gregory of Nyssa and St. Macrina. And, you know, rightly she has, it should be attributed to her because she has the larger role in that book. And he comes in, he's very upset because St. Basil, their brother, has just passed away. And he comes in very angry about wh- where is St. Basil and that, you know, the, the grief can overpower people. And they start having this dialogue on the nature of the soul and the nature of the resurrection. And the result is a very powerful book that strengthens St. Gregory, but also strengthens all of us because it has come down to us and it's available in English. Um, same deal with like St. Augustine of Hippo. You know, he's, he's a unique case because he started off doubting really bad and joined the heretic group and eventually became a skeptical atheist. And when he came to the faith, like correctly, when he was preached to by an educated bishop who was St. Ambrose of Milan, because, you know, the, the, the city that he came from in Africa was, everyone had very poor answers. You know, it's, it's about praying and reading the, trying to read the Bible if they even understood it from what we know that he said. But when he heard the educated answers and the dogmatically correct answers, it caused him to perceive beauty in the faith. And I think that beauty drew him in even when the intellectual issues were not yet solved. But then that there was this month in November 386 Shortly after he becomes a Christian, he's now sitting with his friends and family and his mom, and he starts working out the problems that he has. One of them was about how do we know truth? Another one was about how do we have a happy life? And another one was about the order of the world. Is there order or are we just bound by fate? And those sound like very modern issues. They are. But look at how long ago they were addressed. And we see the correct approach to doubt. It's an opportunity for deepening belief. And it's an opportunity to bring the faith to someone instead of getting defensive and having anxiety. And we don't see that anxiety in in the people who are addressing him or or St. Gregory of Nyssa. We see 
just pure joy at the opportunity to be able to share the faith on a deeper level. And it's, think about where our church will be without those two. It's, yeah, it's, it's, so even it's an approach, you know, we read, wait a second, they didn't get upset of people doubting. So where did we get that idea? Imagine that. And I think it's uh, coming from an assumption that we often have that uh, the past is not as good as the present. And where we are today, we're more enlightened, we're more aware, we're more advanced. So what do uh, people in the fourth century have to possibly offer on our current issues today? What could they possibly have to offer on what we're struggling with today? And we just assume that they have nothing to offer without really looking. Whereas by doing this, we rob ourselves of a very rich history that, uh, like you said, is not only the draws us in with its beauty but it's so deep that it forces us to face certain issues and certain facts that we otherwise would kind of shy away from and because they're uncomfortable or they're inconvenient um, this is often one of the biggest assumptions one of the biggest obstacles that i face with people thinking that yeah, we, you know, we're Orthodox and the church fathers and all that, but I'm sure they didn't address things like uh, issues uh, uh, that face us today. They're, they were in the fourth century, third century, they were in the seventh century. So what could they possibly have to offer to me in the 21st century? Yeah, and it's, it's, I, I find it, it's poor imagination. <laughs> it's like, you know, when you, when you try to explain an experience someone has not had, like, um, I'm trying to think like people when, you know, certain movies, like let's go watch this movie. This is going to be different. This is a 3d movie. Like what's going to be special about a 3d movie. How is it going to be different? And, and it's, you can't argue that with someone, you have to give them the flavor. You have to put them in that experience. Then once they watch like a 3d film, like they're not going to go back to regular films. And where was I before getting that? And I feel like the church fathers give us a three dimensional view about life specifically God and man and nature and those three and how they interact. And it's like those issues that I mentioned, people are like, what? They talked about free will and fate. And these are like issues that atheists bring up. And it's, it's the reality is all these very heavy issues, they're very ancient. And Christianity spent centuries dealing with that and coming up with very good answers, not just answers to get people to stop doubting, but I feel like many times it's answers for the church fathers themselves to be able to make sense of things. And, and you know, they were... An issue like we're facing today with social justice and, and uh, how to love one another. And, and uh, I feel the fathers, or I, I feel the fathers, I think the fathers were um, uh, in many ways... Uh, like us struggling with things that we're struggling with sometimes we have a question and we assume that this question just came to me at this moment and to no one else ever where that's that's not the case 99.9 percent .9 of questions that face us today have been questions that have been around in one form or another for thousands of years even before christianity and people have uh, looked at them and reflected on them and offered solutions and contributions and it is these contributions that we really need to focus on because these contributions have 
been through the test of time. And, you know, sometimes we get so enamored with uh, an answer that someone gives, you know, a contemporary author without really looking at the roots of that question, the roots of the answer. And this contemporary author would say it in a nice uh, sounding way, in a clever way, and just immediately captivate us. But if we look at contributions from uh, the heritage, from the tradition, we would see how maybe the answer that sounded so good, maybe there are deep inherent flaws in it. There are deep implications that we really uh, cannot reconcile with our faith. But um, with answers that have stood the test of time, these implications have been worked out. These uh, issues with the answer have been worked out. Or if they haven't been worked out, it's clear that they haven't been worked out. And there are you know, any hidden assumptions, any unstated assumptions are clarified through the test of time. Yeah, and, and when you say that, I think right now, like um, a lot of times we hear apologists make this argument about the argument for morality. Right. And, and it sounds very nice at the surface and very clever, but, you know, personally, as I've read the fathers, I realize that argument does not hold water at all. Because that view of morality that, you know, that we, we get morality from God. Well, of course, I mean, we believe that, but how we get it, it's very different in ancient Christian understanding than modern Christian. You know, ancient Christians saw morality as like encoded into human nature. Humans have the ability to know right from wrong and good from evil. And that sounds very foreign to modern ears. Like, how could you do that? You've taken God out of the equation. No, we haven't. It's we've really grounded morality in the image of God within us. Those things articulated in the church fathers, the image of God and, and morality of human nature compared to what we see in Western Christianity, where like morality, everyone's absolutely bad. There's no hope, totally depraved. Yeah, and, utter depravity. Yeah, and it's, it gets rid of the image of God within us. It just becomes a term without yeah. any type of clarification where the church fathers clarify and show how that's connected. And it's, it's interesting because the same people go and read C.S. Lewis. And like, oh, his beginning argument's really good. And I'm like, you realize it's totally opposed to what you believe about where morality comes from, right? It's, it's something encoded in us. And it, 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 it raises the question where and why and toward what is this, this morality doing? So it's, we get solid answers from the, the early church and, and it helps us navigate the problems in modernity. So a lot of people will hold to arguments and like, it's right. And the other person says, no, it's wrong. And we don't hear each other. It's like, we don't have the dialogue with the, the atheists and the doubters. It's just, everyone has their own monologue. <laughs> this one's speaking, this yeah. one's, now it's my turn. Now it's your turn. And we wonder why no progress happens because we're not following the spirit of the early Christians. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, the, the term, words have meanings. And just because we're both using the same term doesn't mean we're using it in the same way. And uh, often today when, when people read Christian books or listen to, to Christian uh, videos or podcasts or, uh, or you know, anything, um, they hear certain statements being said and like yeah this this seems to be uh something that i can believe in 
this this makes sense they're using the word you know the bible and inerrancy of the bible the bible is not wrong there are no but they don't understand that these terms have deeper implications they there are they have doctrines attached to them when we say words like inerrancy of the bible it's not just you know the literal meaning of the word the bible has no errors on the literal sense as we would you know interpret the word inerrancy of the bible it has a doctrine of how to read the bible and this doctrine is coming from a certain tra uh, tradition and it makes certain claims about the bible and how the bible is to be read and and interpreted that we as orthodox might not agree with yes we as orthodox might not find compatible with how our tradition reads the bible with how our tradition interprets the bible so terms are very important and without uh, learning about our faith we're just going to gloss over the terms and and inadvertently take in uh, un, uh, opinions or, or ideas that are not orthodox, that are fundamentally in, in, incompatible with uh, orthodoxy, all because they sound right, all because they're using the same terms we would use. Yeah, and that sounding right, it's, it's so dangerous. You know, when I was uh, growing up, there was very heavy Protestant influence in my life because, you know, there was not much available in English for us, and at least we didn't know where to look. So it's, it's you know, I remember like um, inerrancy of the Bible came up a lot, especially between me and my friends, and it's the idea that if, if the Bible we've received, every single manuscript looks exactly the same, and therefore it's, it's proof that this is the inspiration of God. And I remember I went to college and I decided to take a Greek class and we found there's variations in the manuscripts and like, what? And that was troubling then. And I didn't know how to approach it. You know, you got the pastor saying that every single, and I remember I asked the pastor, do you believe every, and I asked belief, that's the wrong question. <laughs> it's, do you believe every single manuscript? If you go back in time and look at it, is exactly the same. And right away, like not even a breath. He said, absolutely. Yes, I do. And I told him, I've seen otherwise. And I've seen it in our Coptic texts. You know, there are slight variations. Now, for those of you listening, they're not variations in meaning. It's, it's not very, like, like, it will not change the meaning and the doctrines that we have. It's not like, like one manuscript Jesus says Jesus is just a man, another says he's God. It's, the idea is, you know, this is, this is the reality of manuscripts. When things were copied down, part of it. Variations. Yeah, there's transcriptional variations. And I remember I, I was listening to one of the fathers on the Psalms. I want to say it was Gregory of Nyssa, St. Gregory of Nyssa. And what do you find? He says, when he's interpreting the Psalms, some of the manuscripts have this heading, but others have that one. I'll interpret both for you. I'm like, what? This was not an issue for them? Why? And I realized the Bible was not written to be read by people individually. It was written to be understood and specifically by those who heard it, because that's how the majority would get it in the first several centuries, heck, several millennia of the, of the church. The whole point was to communicate a message. So when we look at whether the manuscripts are letter for letter the same, that's beside the point. And when people make that claim and share it for years in churches, and it's based on nothing except, you know, um, a blind dogma that's I don't even know where it originated it leads to instability of faith when people decide I want to get deeper into this but then we look at like St. Gregory of Nyssa and he's not the only one by far almost every single church father mentions the variations 
and they point out why. And there was a method that they had to determine what the earliest text looked like. It's called textual criticism, and people think that's a new thing. And it goes back to the ancient church, um, origin specifically in St. Jerome, or like the biggest names in this, and they were aware of it. And the idea is that no matter what type of variations you have, you still draw the same message, the same doctrines. Mm -hmm. And that's what people should focus on. And it's even that approach, how we approach the Bible, how we approach inerrancy. Well, one group means the text is exactly the same in every single manuscript throughout history. And they've probably never looked at a manuscript in real life. Then another group says the message has come down to us. And that there is not unreasonable to believe because we've also received many other ancient texts from the, the past and we've received their messages and we know they're solid. So we get approaches, you know, how we approach doubt, how we approach the variations in the text and these higher level questions that academics raise. Again, it's a lot of them are not new. Absolutely. And, you know, the, um, the school of modern biblical criticism uh, has uh, ancient roots. The methods used the questions that uh, drove the, the motivation behind uh, the analysis and the type of analysis used are by no means, uh, you know, something brand new. The, uh, the questions about mosaic authorship, the questions uh, uh, about different sources, these questions go way back. But the point is that, how is it that I want to address these questions? If I'm willing to take the easy answer, uh, just whatever is going to get me on my way and back, you know, to doing my work, back to living my life, back to focusing on, quote unquote, what's important, then I'm always going to be taking these kind of superficial answers. I, yeah, like you mentioned, I don't know how many, how many uh, Coptic Orthodox Christians have actually held a manuscript or have seen it with their own eyes, but many probably have read books by Lee Strobel. And uh, he says that this is the, the way it is, and this is the way it's done, and these are the claims. And so for, for a lot of us, uh, it's case closed. This is uh, what the situation is, and no further inquiries required. I can just move on with my life. Yeah, and it's, it's, that's where the instability comes from. Um, you know, we have a very famous example of a man who actually abandoned his entire faith over these issues. His name's Bart Ehrman, and it's, 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 he writes so many books about the variations, like he makes claims there are more variations in the manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Then when you start reading him, so he makes that claim. It's, it's, it's a sensational claim. Then they mention like um, 80% of the variations are in the spellings of names. Then you realize, wait a second, what? <laughs> it's, it's. It, it becomes an issue because, you know, it's, this is the approach that we have. Everything is bits by bit. It's, you know, there's, there's no, we don't engage with the thing. We don't try to understand it. We just want quotes. We want bits and pieces. We want samples. Sound by these little, just quick hits and so we can move on. Yeah. We, it's like, it's like samples, you know, you go to Costco and uh, you got samples and if you eat a, um, several different samples, eventually you get full, but it's junk and you didn't get your nutrition. And it's, it's, that's what we, that's how we approach spirituality. 
and, and the issues of doubt and, and, and piety and how we practice that. Whereas in the early church, they focused on the meals. On the main course, absolutely. And yeah. just before, before we move on, just a quick example about variations in names. Like we Copts know all about this pain all too well. Like my last name, Gerges, how many ways can we spell it? Right? Yeah. So, so, and it doesn't mean that I'm a different person or I don't exist or I never existed or I'm a fictional character, uh, you know. No, I'm a real person. I'm here. And just then the name is spelled in many different ways depending on who spelled it. Yeah, it's, it's, we have the applications in, in our time. So it's not hard for us to understand when we go back. Now, a lot of times people say that theology is for this, the, the specialist. And that we're not going to understand it unless someone has a degree. And, you know, many times we see that's not quite the case. It depends on where they studied. But what do you see as the role of the congregation? Like, does the congregation have a role in theological awareness? Or is, you know, we leave theological awareness to the priests, to, to abunas, to fathers, and, and everyone else goes about their business. And, you know, the fathers, their role is to to form us 100% without any type of effort on our part. What, what do you see with that? I see, of course, this, is, this as a tragedy that we currently, the majority of us, aren't really as uh, well-informed about our tradition, our history, theologically trained as we should be. In the past, uh, and I believe it was, it was St. Gregory, uh, the theologian, he would say, like, everywhere you go, you'd hear people discussing theology, uh, discussing the nature of Christ, discussing Arius and St. Athanasius. And everywhere you go, you go to the barber shop, you go to the butcher shop, you go to the market, everybody's discussing it. Everybody's understanding. Everybody's aware. And because now we made our focus to, you know, make a living. We want to establish ourselves. We're... Uh, we're immigrants. We've been in the West for about 50 years now. And we're here. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to establish a position for ourselves. We want to work hard. We want to uh, either become the doctor, the lawyer, the engineer, the pharmacist. Anything else, you know, won't do. And, um, uh, you know, uh, where does theology fall in this? Well, I, I don't, there's no room for it. It's not really going to help me achieve that goal where in actuality, every Orthodox Christian is a holder, is a keeper of the Orthodox faith. It's not something that uh, you have a question, you go to the specialist, you go to the source, you go to the church. You are the church. Every church is called the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. These Four descriptions of churches is about 90% of the description of what a church is that we have from early fathers. They didn't talk about church because they're living church. And these four words describe the church as being one holy Catholic and apostolic, meaning uh, the term Catholic especially means that it's universal and it's, it's got the whole faith and it doesn't have part of the faith. It doesn't address part of a specific sin or problem. Each church is the church, and all of us together are the church. Uh, you don't go to, for example, a church in Jerusalem to talk about specific things, and another church in Alexandria that specializes in other things. 
were all keeper of the entire, the totality of faith. So if people in, in churches, if Christian, Orthodox Christians aren't um, theologically trained, aren't theologically aware, you know, to use that term, aren't, aren't theologically aware, churches become, um, you know, incomplete in the sense that, no, not every church is entirely aware of its faith. They know of the faith. They know, for example, who to go to to ask about certain questions, but they're not fully aware. And this is really a, a tragedy because if we don't know who it is that we worship, what is it that we're doing? Or we become Pharisees. We really were kind of uh, worshiping him with our lips, but our hearts, our minds, it's elsewhere. So it's important to understand that we come from a tradition of people who took the faith seriously enough to dedicate considerable amount of time and resources to learn it, to understand it. We wouldn't take this approach with anything else that we do in life. I want to be a teacher. I'm not going to just say, you know what, to be a teacher, all you need to do is read a book. You don't need to read the whole book all at once. Like read a book for one chapter a day for maybe five, 10 minutes, uh, maybe before you go to sleep or maybe we would never do that. You want to be a doctor? Here's a book on being a doctor. Go read this book. And if you read it, all of it, you know, in, in whatever, in one year, or if you read it in six months, if you read it in 10 years by the end, that's not how it works, right? But with the most important thing in our lives, with our faith, this is the approach that unfortunately we're taking. We're saying we don't need to pursue it uh, rigorously. We just need to maybe read about it a little bit every day and that will be sufficient. That of course is not the case. Yeah. And it's, 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 we, we kind of forget like the Bible's a book, a set of books and that what applies to other books also applies to it. So, you know, reading for the central idea, you know, making connections across the text. Oh, we, we do that with the Bible. <laughs> it's, 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 it's amazing how, I don't even know what to say. It's like, it's almost like we treat it as a skeleton. You know, it's, it's nothing that is alive on its own. Like we're trying to move it where it should be moving us. And it's, it won't move us if we don't know how to read it. I remember one time mom was doing a Bible study when I was in high school and it was with, with my Western friends. And this is pretty much how the study went. What do you like in this chapter? What did you like? And, and to be fair, that was not the whole group. It was only a couple of girls that were reading like that. Others were really engaging it and, and drawing out the central idea. But this specific instance, it was just the young girls. And that approach doesn't get you to understand anything. Whereas when we look at, like, we go back to the examples we have from the early church, it's they can grapple with a chapter through three, like they write three chapters of commentary on one chapter in the Bible. And, and, you know, the longest work of the church fathers is by St. Gregory the Great. And it's 2000 pages on the book of Job. And someone asked me, how can you write 2000 pages on the book of Job? How long is the book of Job? What, 42 chapters? I'm like, yeah. It's like, so 2000 pages. And they did a calculation and it's like, I think 50 pages per chapter. Maybe my math's off. <laughs> and it's like, you're telling me he wrote 50 pages of commentary on every chapter in Job? I'm like, 
yeah, that's how it works. And it's like, who read that book? I'm like, actually, it was the second most widely read book in the Middle Ages. Like, how do you know that? Because the number of manuscripts available, people don't copy books unless they read them. And it's, and it's, it's terrifying. It's like, they did not go for the shorter books. They didn't go for the easier books. It was this very large book that moved them. Then you raise the question, so do we know what the other books were read? Yeah. The next most widely read book is 168 pages long. I'm like, what? <laughs> and it's, it's because of the value and the content, not the size and the ease of reading it. And it's, it's, it's very telling. Like even with that book by St. Gregory the Great, the commentary on Job, people would risk life and them and travel across lands through, you know, forests and rivers and very bad weather and wars to be able to get the final part of the book copied and take it back to their own land. And, and, and that's where the role of the laity comes in. It's these writings would not have survived unless there was an audience for them. And we kind of lose that. We look at the authors but we don't look at the readers, the audience. We look at the authors and we praise them, but we forget the audience who demanded that such works be written. And that's where the church comes in. And we see that harmony between every single member in the church that they delivered this faith to us. So when we ignore their writings, we're not ignoring the authors who are saints. We're also ignoring the thousands of unnamed saints in those times and in the times up till our present that caused us to receive this tradition. And I feel like if we had an imagination in the West and not thought we know everything, you know, and, I, and unfortunately that's our education system. You're handed a degree when you finish a course of study. And, and that degree, as we know, especially if we're in the medical field or the teaching field requires continuing education. Why? Because the field's never done. The degree just says, you've passed the minimum requirements. What? Yeah, the minimum requirements to be able to practice in the field. But we think it's, oh, I accomplished it. I'm done. I'm an expert. I'm a doctor. <laughs> and and it's, it's, we feel like we don't need any more imagination. We know everything. And it's, it's, it's amazing because that is what we call the sin of pride. And that, that sin has prevented us from being able to access those treasures. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode to be beneficial or interesting, please subscribe to my podcast and share it with your friends and family. You can also visit my website, danielhannawriter.com, where I have written articles and a list of recommended books, including much of what I mention on my podcast. I have also written on many different aspects of the Christian faith, from the Bible to spirituality to apologetics, book reviews, dialogues, patristics, and philosophy.